Good luck, teachers of kids. You seem a little more lively tonight than normal. Thank you, Corey, for leading us in worship. That, what she just did is not easy at all, leading just with the vocal. Um, it's very, very difficult. And, um, and um, that was a blessing. Thank you for leading us. Yeah. Clay, we appreciate you not offering up your help. We really do. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, it could have been magical, but it wasn't, so that's okay. It's no big deal. Um, all right, well, we're going to be um, talking tonight about prayer, and before we start, I just want to remind y'all that we're in need of some help on Wednesday nights. A couple of y'all came and um, talked to me last night, or last week. When we began this study, one of the things that we um, stated was that in order for adults to have a study with adults... Every adult who's a part of that will need to serve with the kids at some point in some capacity. And so um, right now we're pretty good on teachers, but we, what we need is volunteers for nursery and for toddlers. And so if that's something that you're not currently doing in any way, consider maybe serving on Wednesday nights with our children and particularly in um, volunteering with our nursery and toddlers, which... All I'm asking you to do is hold adorable babies who they actually hear they don't cry, they don't dirty their diapers. It's amazing. It's magical. That's twice tonight. Two magic moments. So, um, yeah, so we need help. So if you can help with that, please let us know or talk to Annie and Tiff and let them know. Um, We learn to meditate and pray by doing both, not just by studying them. We don't learn to meditate and pray by just reading about what it is in the Bible or by hearing from others about their meditation and prayer. We learn it by doing it. And that's how it is with all of these disciplines that we're talking about throughout this spring semester, is that just because we came here and heard something does not mean we have lived it. Just because we have um, had some input biblically does not mean we have done anything with it in the way of obedience and, and movement and worship. And so I want us to be reminded of that as we begin because I want you to take notes and I want you to listen and I want you to consider the text with an aim towards change in behavior, with an aim towards moving in a different manner, with an aim towards um, seeking to glorify God by doing what he tells us to do in the disciplines. So let's pray and we will um, continue our study tonight in prayer. Lord, we come to you now and we humble ourselves before you. We ask that you would use this time as you see fit. We ask that that we would each be honest, transparent, and humble before you, and that we would grow in our desire um, to have a healthy and full relationship with our Lord. All these disciplines, Lord, are about walking with you closely and engaging you and being engaged by you And Lord, we are among the most blessed to ever walk the earth because of what Christ accomplished for us. Please help us tonight to understand more what prayer is, what you aim to accomplish in it, what happens in it, in hopes that we will be more prayerful. Lord, we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What are some ways that God utilizes our imagination in meditation and prayer? 
we talked about last week, Use of Our Imagination. It was titled, Into the Unseen Through the Imagination. One at a time. What are some ways that God gave you to picture him in your mind? Yeah? Yeah, through creation, we can, we can know some things about him as creator. What are some other pictures he gives us? Father, that's a big one. Shepherd. All right, that's sufficient. That's fine. I don't want to push you. Don't want to push you. Um, Father, shepherd, creator, he gives us these things that are, he, he, the, the quote that I shared last week is that he so enfleshes himself um, into our understanding, that, that he uses pictures that are of this world of created things to help us understand unseen things, that he's so tender and so merciful that he'll explain to you, view me as a shepherd, so as you pray, you can see someone gently leading those that are with young, gently, carefully um, helping to keep the sheep safe and guide the sheep to where they need to be so that they can get the nourishment that they need to get. We see him as a father, and tonight we're going to talk particularly about him as a very good father who welcomes his children and answers their prayers and only gives them good things. And he, we see him as, as creator, and we can look at the things created and see in some part, wow, um, our God is... is, is beyond the scope of our understanding. He's more creative than we understand. And we can look at each other and say, we're created in his image. And so there's something even in how we see each other and walk with each other that we can understand God. And so God gives us our imagination and he, he sort of reclaims our imagination and says, I want you to think about the right things. But the other part of that, the flip side of the same coin is you can think about the wrong things and your imagination can lead you far away from God. So we talked about how God can use imagination to help us understand it better do you remember what odious sanctum is? Holy leisure. What is that? Is that good, bad, desirable, undesirable? Very desirable. Why? What does it mean? Yep, sounds like meditation. Yeah. This was holy, le- no, it wasn't clearing of the mind. That's Eastern meditation. We're not talking about that. We fill our minds with good things with which to reflect, not nothing with which not to reflect. That, that didn't make much sense, but we're, uh, we are, as we're talking about Odie saying, we're talking about this holy leisure, and it's this state that our, our forefathers in the faith talked about where um, we, there's a balance where there's an enjo- you're enjoying the things of life as you go about and you have an awareness of the presence of God and you can constantly be at peace because of um, this holy leisure that you have. In this, and, and it's all, all a reflection of a very, very, very close walk with God. It's all a reflection of someone who, as in Revelation 3, when he knocks on the door of someone who opens it and makes room for emotional and spiritual growth. You make room for God to come in and say, you think your state is this, but your state is actually this. And you think you have this, but this is actually what you have. And God comes in and offers you things that you didn't even know existed when you make room and make space for him. And so this odious sanctum is this holy leisure of um, being in a close walk with the Lord. And when I read the definition last week, I 
I just thought, man, I want that. I would love that. I wish I was in that state all the time rather than frantic or anxious or distracted or discontent. What did we learn from Peter about the importance of prayer? 1 Peter 4, 7 is, is where we were for a majority of the time last week. What did we learn? Yeah, there, there was a, um, did it say the beginning of all things is at hand? The end. And it said, be, so, so be what? Yeah, so reminded him what else? Self-controlled, why? For the sake of your prayers. So what we saw from Peter last week is, is if there was anyone who would have sort of a ho-hum view of prayer, it would probably be Peter. He, everything he did, whether it was good or bad, God still accomplished his purposes. So you could see Peter as a guy who might say, I don't know what the point in prayer is. God's sovereign. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to save what he wants to save. But that's not what happened with Peter. What we found last week was that Peter realized that because the end of all things is at hand, he lives in a unique season. And it's a season where it's sort of the sometime between the beginning of the end and the end of the end. And we just call them the end days, the final days. That's the time we, we live in. We live in the same time that he lived in. And he said, because of the time that we live in and the things that we know, and we know what is absolutely certain about the return of Jesus, our prayers should be, we should guard our prayers. He says, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers. That means there's things we can do for the sake of our prayers, which means there are things that we can do that actually cause us to forsake our prayers. So we had to understand what time we live in. Turn over to Matthew 24. This is what we ended with last week. This is what we're going to begin with this week. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is explaining verse th- in verse 3 um, the signs of the end of the age. These are signs that he is saying, I'm, I'm Jesus, I've come to earth, and I will return after I conquer death to take all of my children home. And you'll know that... the This is the time I'm talking about, the time we're calling the end of the age, by these things. And this is what we ended with, and this we're going to pick back up. And in 24.3, Jesus says this, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? These are the kind of questions that we would ask if Jesus was present. You're here. You're you're going to return. You're, you're, You're our king When's this going to happen, and when's that going to happen, and what are going to be some signs? What could we be looking for? Because you're our, you're our king, you're the Messiah, you're the long-awaited one. What's going to happen? The same kind of questions we would be asking. And then look what happens. He says, they say, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They were expecting things to change drastically. They were expecting that Christ would have an effect on everything they knew to be true. They were expecting that the presence of Christ would transform life as they knew it. And to such a degree, they said, what's the sign of the end of this age? And look what he says. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning, beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is very, very real. If you've never seen these verses, they're probably likely a little bit startling. Because what we see in them is what we experience today. What we see in them is what we know to be true throughout the world today. Is that real enough for you? Wars, rumors of wars. I mean, we've got both of those pretty, like, is there a war going on there or not? Or are these actual people fighting them? Or is this country that's fighting them? Is this a rumor? What's going on here? Wars, rumors of wars. Famines. Earthquakes. Persecution of Christians. Such cataclysmic events will be a regular part of this age until the return of Jesus to redeem all of creation. So the thing we closed with last week was that CNN, Fox News, Channel 4, 5, 8, and 11 spend the majority of their day reporting on the return of Jesus Christ. You turn on the news and that is what you see over and over and over and over again. And it should give you, rather than alarm and rather than fear, you can look at that and say, Jesus is the truth speaker. He said that would happen. So another earthquake in Irving, Jesus is a truth speaker. He said that would happen. Wars, we shouldn't be unseated by that because he told us that would be part of what happens. And he says, here's what you do. Don't let your love grow cold in this and don't turn from me. Don't be fearful. You persevere to the end. You hold close to me. And that's why these disciplines are so important. Because it is through these disciplines that we put ourselves on the path of discipline grace. That's why these are so important. That's why things like meditation and prayer and service to other people and sacrifice and simplicity and all these other number of things that we're going to talk about are so important because they are the means that God has given us to stay close to him in the end age that we live in. It's very, very important. So what does this have to do with my prayer life? Well, if you lose sight of the time that you live in, namely a time where the end of all things is at hand, as Peter said, you will not see a purpose in prayer, or you'll see the wrong purpose in prayer. Belief in God's sovereignty causes active obedience, not passive observation. Belief in God's, God's sovereignty does not foster futility in his children. It explodes it. It does away with it. Because we know truths, because he's promised them to us. The promises of God are precious to his children. And so Jesus is undoubtedly coming back. So pray to that end. When we say, come Lord Jesus, come, we're not saying, oh, will there ever be a day where the Lord comes back? We're saying only that which we know is absolutely certain because Jesus said he will come back and he will gather his children and he will take you home and you will begin eternity. You have promises waiting in heaven, a place prepared in heaven So we pray to that end, come Lord Jesus, come. 
That's a big part of our prayer, come Lord Jesus, come. We want his kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven because in that way, the new heavens and new earth will be established. It will be the end of things here, which means the beginning of eternity with our God. So I have a question that I just want us to kick around for a few minutes. What are the things that we're terribly guilty of anticipating more than the return of Christ? Valentine's Day? The weekend. The new season of Walking Dead. Getting married. Grandchildren. Grown children. Grandchildren going back home, okay? What are some other things we really genuinely spend a lot of time thinking about? Retirement. Retirement. Man, oh. My next meal. No, it's cool. It's no judgment. No judgment. We're doing all right. <laughs> what else do we anticipate? Maybe more than the return of Christ. I anticipate him coming home mm-hmm. so that I'm not being a parent on my own. Mm-hmm. I'm sure lots of people in the room can, can relate. There, there's a number of things that it's not bad to anticipate. But the problem is when we stop anticipating the return of our Lord. Because this says that so much of our prayer has to do with understanding that the end of the age is at hand. The end, the end of things is, is at hand. And so if we stop anticipating the return of our Lord, it's going to affect our prayers in a negative way. Good health, a promotion, being debt-free, retirement, marriage, children. Maybe it's just the thought of a life that doesn't hurt so much and the thought of a life that isn't so stinking difficult. We are awaiting salvation. We are awaiting the return of our Lord. And interestingly, the time we live in is very similar to the time of Habakkuk. He lived in a world where there were lots of distractions, in a time where there were lots of distractions, and he lived in a time where things seemed to be getting worse in some settings. People's love was growing cold. Um, People were not heeding the commands of the Lord. And so I want you to turn to Habakkuk. I'm sure you're... We were there just yesterday, Habakkuk, right after Nahum, if that helps anybody, right before Zephaniah, if that helps anybody. But I think we can all appreciate Habakkuk right as he opens his mouth at the beginning. He is a prophet, and he is prophesying in a time that is similar to the time we live in in some ways, and greatly different in others. But listen to Habakkuk 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? We are not used to hearing prayers like that, are we? I mean, the first time I read that, I was like, is this a good satellite passage? Because maybe Habakkuk could be like the guy, don't do what Habakkuk did. His honesty here is, is good, only because the Lord is so utterly patient and merciful. 
So listen to how honest he is and look at what happens. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? I'm hesitant to read this. Like I feel like lightning is just going to with such words to our Lord. Why are you being idle when I need you so bad? It's a very honest prayer. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. This is a rough time. This is not a happy morning devotional where he's ready to face the day as a conqueror. He is feeling very, very defeated. Do you know why he's feeling defeated? Because he's very aware of what's going on in his world. And he's going to God and he's not seeing the changes that he wants to see right now. He's frustrated. You can hear it in his tone. Why are you being idle, God? Destruction, violence, lawlessness, wickedness, sinfulness, disgusting things are going on all over, and we can't even get close to something just happening because wicked people surround the good people, and there's no hope of good things happening. What are you doing, God? The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, Habakkuk. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. How would you respond if you were Habakkuk? (laughs) I'm going to shut up now. This book is done. Yeah. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. When you look among the nations, are you full of wonder and are you astounded? Or are you like Habakkuk? I'm more like Habakkuk. I see what's going on in other countries, and I let the the news affect me to where I think things like, why would I ever leave my home? It's all just bad everywhere. If you fly there, your plane's likely to crash, but if you do make it there, they'll kill you when you get there. We can have views like that of of all the nations. And God... Here, in a time where Habakkuk is like, God, it couldn't get any worse. Everyone is so wicked. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. What is God reminding Habakkuk of in this verse? Yeah. Habakkuk. What? His timing. He's very gently... I mean, his answer is probably way softer than ours would have been to Habakkuk. He's saying, Habakkuk, you have no idea everything I'm doing. If I told you everything I was doing, you would still have no idea. Habakkuk, you don't have the capacity and the infinite wisdom that I have to understand everything that I'm doing across the globe that at this moment you think is falling apart. It's okay to be broken over wickedness. It's okay to be sorrowful about sin, but Habakkuk, please don't 
forget I am God and I'm doing things right now. I'm not just aware. Don't call me idle. I'm not just aware of what's going on. I'm in fact doing a work that when you look up and raise your eyes from, from, from where they are right now, you should be in awe and wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This greatly illustrates for us our sometimes very narrow view that needs to be greatly widened. We see only the hard issues at hand, and it's good to cry out to God. But sometimes we need to remember how God responded to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I'm doing more than you understand. I'm doing more than you know, and I've never done anything wrong. I've never done anything other than what is perfectly good. I never move in any way that's outside of justice. Habakkuk, don't lose sight of that. So he cries out to God. And Habakkuk's plea is the same as ours. God, when are you going to come back and redeem your people? When are you going to stop all of this rampant wickedness and these beheadings and this terrorism and this human trafficking and this abortion and these things that are just gross and vile and we make laws to protect these things? When is that going to happen, God? It's not hard to understand where Habakkuk is. I think it's probably pretty easy for us to understand such things, such a notion. So first Habakkuk prays, and then God answers. And this is the pattern throughout the whole short book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk prays, God answers. Habakkuk offers up a concern even, and God answers. Habakkuk flat out complains and, and whines, and God answers. He's so merciful throughout it, and God continues to show him things, and this is what I'm doing, and, and there, or just show him that I'm doing something that you may not understand. And God's merciful, and he provides answers and gives insight the same way he does when we pray. But look what happens, because right now what we're talking about is that when we pray, we change, and that's part of prayer. Prayer changes us. That's a very good thing. We need to be changed, and that's part of what prayer is. And so here, look what happens in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Chapter 3, 16 through 19. So we saw how we started. Habakkuk's saying, God... Quit sitting on your hands and do something. God tells them, I'm doing things you don't understand. And they go back and forth, the whole book, and look at how it ends. Look what happens to Habakkuk. At the end of chapter 16, he says, Yet, 3.16, at the second part, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. And he makes me tread on my high places. What a change. So what happened to Habakkuk through that prayer? Through his prayers, through God's answering of his prayers, how did he change? Yeah. He went from maybe not having a real clear view of the Lord to through prayer being more focused on the Lord. And how, how did that change him? What, what happened when he had this clear view of God? Peace. Peace. How do we know he has peace? 
He's accepting the conditions. The conditions stink. He's accepting them. Why? What does he reveal in his prayer? Why would he accept the conditions when they stink? He trusts that God will take care of the problems that are happening. What else do we see there about how he changed? dire, yeah. Yeah, through prayer, Habakkuk's demeanor, his approach was changed from concern, misunderstanding, lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, from anxiety to one who is able to rejoice and take joy in God no matter the circumstance. It sounds a lot like Philippians chapter 4. Turn there. Paul explains something similar in Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And you might think to yourself in your circumstance, always? <laughs> Maybe you don't know what I'm going through, but, but we luckily right fresh on our heels is Habakkuk. Where we can see things were terrible. And so you could see Paul looking at Habakkuk and saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And you could see Habakkuk moving from God, you're sitting and doing nothing and you're idle oh, you're doing work I don't know, to everything can be falling apart and I will trust in the God of my salvation. He, I will rejoice in him because he is he's good and he will help me no matter what. You can hear Paul rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. It sounds like Peter. The Lord is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. No matter how dire the circumstance, what this says, in short, is you can go to God in prayer. When you go to God in prayer, do it like this. Let your request be made known. How, how remarkable is it that the creator of all things created who has wisdom far beyond yours, far beyond Habakkuk's, in the same way that he looked at Habakkuk and said, just take a look at the nations again, Habakkuk. I'm doing something that you don't understand. I'm, you should be in awe of what I'm doing. Here he's saying, let your request be made known. Little children, let your request be made known, trust me. Bring him, to, bring him here. Sometimes we have this view of God that's like, and he's not doing that. 
He's not crossing his arms and looking sideways at you. He's saying, bring me your requests. Let your requests be made known. He's not saying, make sure your requests sound very holy and very you know, scriptural and use some these and thousands, then bring it to me saying, bring, what is it that's, that's getting at you? What is it that's making you anxious? Don't be anxious. Bring me your requests. And then he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, th- so the point is, you don't just say, God, I want this, 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 and 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 on, and on, and on, and on. You go to him in prayer, And supplication, which is asking for help, with thanksgiving. Because in every single moment, no matter how dire it is, you need to be reminded that you have something to be thankful for. There's never a time where you can go to him with your requests and let them be made known and say, I'm sorry, I got nothing to be thankful for. Because there's something that happens in that moment when you go to him and say, God, this circumstance feels like it might actually kill me. This circumstance is the hardest thing I've ever felt and I got nothing to be thankful for, is different than if you go to him and say, this circumstance is hard, but you have seen me through this, Lord, and you've blessed me this morning with this. And I had a conversation from a sweet friend where they spoke words that were like apples of gold and settings of silver that were so fitly spoken, and I needed it, and I know it came from you, and I'm thankful, Lord. In that, I'm asking for this. This is my need. He allows us to come to him like that, and look at what he does. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. He's saying, I'm going to answer your prayer. And I'm going to answer it by making sure that your heart and your mind are guarded in Christ. And you know how I'm going to do that? He says, I'm going to give you peace that exceeds understanding. For control freaks, for people who are being anxious, you give me understanding, I'll have peace. Tell me how this is going to go down, I'll have peace. Tell me what all the dynamics are of the circumstance, I'll have peace. And he's saying, here is understanding. Here is the peace I give you. It exceeds understanding. And this peace is what will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. You don't know, need to know everything that's going on because you don't have the capacity and the eternal wisdom to understand it and handle it. You think you want to know, God, tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. Tell me what's going to happen a year from now. How are my children going to do? Is there anything bad that's going to happen? What date do I need to be ready to, 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 to prepare for a really hard day? He's saying, you can't handle that. How about this? I give you peace that's better than understanding. You want understanding. I'll give you peace that's better, and it'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ. But you don't find that outside of prayer. You don't find that outside of prayer. It's in the taking things to God in a thankful way and letting your request be made known that he says, and in that, I will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. So from Peter and Paul, we find that our purpose in prayer is found in some extent to the time we live. We know that the end is near, so we pray to that end. And through those prayers, we learn to rejoice and take joy in God, who through all of it will will undoubtedly help us in what might be some of our most difficult times. So through prayer, we're changed. But my question is, is this all that's happening in prayer, that, that we're just changed? And I want you to turn to 1 John 5.14. It is important to understand that we're changed in prayer. It might be one of the most important points in it. I'm not sure if the Bible gives us that much, but as I've been studying it, I'm thinking we need to go to God knowing we need change, and we need to know that he answers our prayers. So in 1 John 5.14, something else happens. 
And it says this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What is the confidence? That he what? That he hears us. Being heard for the psalmist was a big deal. Hear my cries, O Lord. Hear my pleas. Lord, take time. Lend your ear. Hear what I have to say. So what does it matter that God hears us? Why does God care to hear from us? And I think if we're totally honest, many of us don't think he does. I think one of our biggest struggles in prayer is that we don't actually think God cares to hear from us. What that means is that I don't want to waste my breath talking to someone who cares little about what I have to say. And for many of us, we might feel this way about God. I don't believe that he cares about hearing from me. So why would I go to him in prayer? And what you need to know, according to this verse, is that there is a confidence that happens in us when we go to God in prayer and are reminded that he actually hears us. There's a confidence that happens. So in prayer, we're changed. And in prayer, we are heard. My question is, how might this confidence affect the way you live? Yeah. Yeah. Here's everything. Here's our prayers. How might that help you in the area of confidence? We're anxious because we don't know what's going to happen. We're anxious because we're worried about what's going to happen. So before we go into any scenario or any day, we can pray to God and know that he hears us and then go into that scenario saying, I'm absolutely certain as I'm walking down this path, even though it might be hard, that my God heard me this morning. That my God hears my prayers. I'm confident before I went into this interview, but God hears my prayers. If I'm supposed to have this job, I'm going to have this job. And guess what? If not, I'm not. But I'm confident he heard my prayers. It's not a health and wealth, name it, claim it joke. It's confidence that God is in more control than we are. It's confidence that helps us to walk boldly in areas where we would just otherwise be terrified. It's a confidence that makes us take risks that we would otherwise never take. We could say, you know what? I'm entrusting myself to the Lord. I'm entrusting my kids to the Lord. I'm entrusting my family to the Lord. I'm entrusting my friends to the Lord. And we're going to walk off in this because I know that he hears my prayers. I know that when I prayed about this and asked for guidance and direction, God didn't sit there with his ears plugged, not caring about me. He's the king of all kings. He's the creator of all things created. And he listened to me. He listened. So he changes us in our prayers. And he hears us in our prayers. Turn to Isaiah 64, 7. Isaiah 64, 7. So, he changes us. He hears us. Isaiah prophesied in similar circumstances, like Habakkuk. People were hardening their hearts toward God. They weren't listening to what the problems that their sins were causing 
They weren't listening to the heart condition that was trying to be, got, that was trying to be made clear in their sin. And in 64.7, says this. Isaiah is pouring his heart out. And he says to God, there's no one who calls on you, God. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about people who stop for long enough to say, God, we need direction from you. God, we thank you. God, we are, we, we are nothing without you. God, we need your help to move forward. He said there's no one who's stopping, in stopping their busyness or stopping their wickedness to pray. Say, so God, there's no one who calls out, there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You've hidden your face from us. Made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Rousing yourself to take hold of God. That's something that is also happening while we pray. Rather than wallowing in your sin, rather than perpetuating a cycle of life that has no purpose because you think, God's sovereign, we're robots, what's the point? Rather than being hopeless in your dynamics and circumstances, rather than feeling like it's just bad and it's just always going to be bad and no one's going to change, rouse yourself to take hold of the Lord. That's what the prophet's saying. Liven up. Consider how you can lay hold of God in prayer. Rouse yourself to take hold of the Lord. God would rather that you rouse yourself to take hold of him in prayer than expect Maybe what Habakkuk expected at the very beginning. That he's not doing anything. Yeah, that makes me think of, to whom shall we go? You're going to walk away too. To whom shall we go? Every other promise he's made, he's kept. And the promises that we now sit with are Jesus is going to return and take us home. He's never broken any of the other promises, and he will absolutely not break that. So when we pray, he changes us. When we pray, he hears us. When we pray, we are rousing ourselves to take hold of God. And then what happens when, when that happens? What if you're like, you know what, okay, I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give it a go. We're going to go home tonight. We're going we're to pray. <laughs> what happens when we rouse ourselves like Habakkuk and take hold of God? Habakkuk did what Isaiah was prophesying. Habakkuk got up off of his can and said, God, all right, here we are. This stinks. What do you got to say? And God says, let me say something. And he tells him, I'm doing things. And so Habakkuk did what Isaiah prophesied, and many of us need to do the same. But what happens when we do? Is there anything else to prayer beyond it changing us and beyond us knowing that God hears our prayers and beyond us rousing ourselves to take hold of God? Once we rouse ourselves to take hold, what is 
happening? And I would offer that, yes, something else happens. And I think it's utterly remarkable. Turn to Matthew 7. As you turn there, Matthew 7. Um, James 4.3 says, um, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You don't have because you don't ask and you ask wrongly to receive because you, don't, because you want to spend it on your own passions. It's wrong. So you're either asking wrongly or you're not asking at all and that's part of the reason you don't have what you want or need. And then in Matthew 7, verse 7, um, this is Jesus speaking. And if, it's interesting because if you read through James, he just is saying what Jesus said in, in other ways. It says this, 7-7, seven, seven, Matthew. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, let's not, let's not be fluffy with the words, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? to those who ask him. I was hesitant to go here because I know a lot of people in this room are going through some junk. I know some of y'all have experienced some of the greatest heartache. Y'all have had some sleepless nights. Y'all have prayed and things didn't happen as you wanted them to. And many of y'all have sat confused looking at God and saying, what, what gives? So, what's happening here? Ask and it will be given. He gives good things. He's a good father. John Piper, in a sermon that he preached on this, he, he just has a, a section that I thought, I was like, I can't say it any better than that, so I'll just say what he said. He says this, when you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases. And that God is infinitely righteous so that he only does what's right. And that he's infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good. And that he's infinitely wise so that he always knows perfectly what is right and good. And that he's infinitely loving so that in all his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask him for things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful which means that one of the great short-term tragedies in the church is how little inclination we have to pray. The greatest invitation in the world is extended to us, and incomprehensibly, we regularly turn away to other things. So what is God inviting us to do in this, in this verse? To do what? 
Three things. Ask, seek, and knock. He's so merciful that he says, I'm going to put this three different ways. Ask, seek, knock. And I heard, one of the illustrations I heard was imagining a child in their home. And if they're present with their father, they just ask their father for what they need. But if the father is somewhere in the house and they're not sure, they go to seek their father. And, and, and in seeking, they'll find. Or if they find that their father's in the study behind a door, they can knock and their father will open it. God's giving you a metaphor and an illustration here that is very indicative of a child looking for their father. Not just any father, but a father who's only infinitely good and wise. And what does he promise when we accept his invitation to ask, seek, and knock? What does he promise? This is not my promise. This is God's promise. What does he say? Asking you what? What else does he say? Find? Knock and what will happen? <laughs> Ask, seek, knock, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to receive, find, and the door will be opened. And why does he make this promise according to his reasoning in this verse? Because he is what? He's a good father. There are some things that we do not have because we have not asked. Do you hear that? It says, you have not because you asked not. And James is talking about what Peter says, or what Jesus says. And when you go to what Jesus says, he says, ask, and it will be given. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. How many of us live an absolutely prayerless life and we complain about what we don't have? We have not prayed about anything and we don't have the direction that we need. That happens a lot, but some of us do pray. And I want you to know what happens when you pray. There are some things we do not have because we have not asked. That's a reality that needs to set in and affect the way we pray. You're sitting in a state right now where you do not have some things that you could have and you have not asked the Lord for them. The second thing is that there are some things that we can have in the future if we'll ask God the right way. That's a big promise. I, I, I wish there were better words and more emphasis that I could give to say, do you hear what God just said? Do we believe what God just said? There's some things we don't have because we've not asked or we asked the wrong way, and there are some things in the future that we can have and that we will have because we asked him rightly. And here's the thing that I want us to see in this verse. He says, you know, who, will, who asks for a fish and you give him a serpent? Who will ask for, um, for a stone or for bread and you give him a stone? This is a big, big, big point. In all these things, God will never give us what is bad for us. God will never give us what's bad for us. And I say that knowing some people in this room have been through some heartache. He will never give us what's bad for us. He's, it's his promise and prayer. I can't add anything to it. I can't take away from it. Your God is a good father, and he views you as his child. He will never 
give us what's bad for us. We may have the circumstances of other people's sin that make our lives miserable. We may have the conditions of a fallen nature, which sometimes makes us miserable. But in all of that, you need to know that your God only answers your prayers with what is good. And he never, ever gives you what's bad. Ever. He never has and he never will. He only gives you what's good. So, um, today when I came to this point, I had to sit and spend some time in confession in my office to the Lord. Because I said, you know what, God? This little circumstance here, I saw that as bad. And, and I blamed you. But the reality is, the only good I had in that circumstance was the good that you gave me. I had to pray and ask God for forgiveness and say, God, you know, this condition that I see, I see that as bad. But you're only a good God who answers his children as a father who's loving. God never gives us what's bad for us. It's his promise. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, it's not because it's not true. It's because you got some things to work through, and that's okay. You can do that. But the starting point is saying God will never give us what's bad for us. He only gives good things. So no, he will not always give you whatever you ask. <laughs> it's kind of the catch here at the end. He only gives good things. So if you ask for a serpent, he's not going to give it to you. If you ask for a stone, he won't give it to you. He gives you good things. In closing of his sermon on this, Piper said this. He said, if we take the passage as a whole, it says that when we ask and seek and knock, when we pray as needy children, looking away from our own resources to our trustworthy Heavenly Father, He will hear and He will give us good things. Sometimes He'll give us just what we've asked for. I think some of us in here need to confess our cynicism to the Lord, saying, He never gives me what I asked for. Sometimes He will give you exactly what you asked for. He's a good Father. Sometimes he'll give it to us just when we ask for it. Sometimes he'll give us what we've asked for just the way we desire it. And other times he'll give us something better. It's not easy. Other times he'll give us something better. Or at a time that he knows is better. Or in a way that he knows is better. I heard a story this week. Someone was telling me about a father who his, his son just wanted this big, crazy, exorbitant gift, and he knew, man, my, my son can't handle that. If I give that to my son, he'll become a terrorist, and, you know, it'll be terrible. And so he bought his son a bike because he knew that when his birthday came around in a few months that he, would, he, he could use a bike, and it's a good gift for that time in his son's life. And as the days went by, he would point out bikes, he would bring bikes to his son's attention. He would craft his son's life to where every now and again, oh, would you like to have a bike like that? Oh, look how much fun they're having on that bike. And then when his birthday came around, he gave him the bike. The son didn't get what he asked for. But somehow his father, who loved him very much, had orchestrated things in such a way that where he was very, very pleased with what he had gotten. The illustration breaks down at some point, much like every other illustration. But God gives us prayer so that we will be changed. He gives us prayer because 
He wants us to know that he hears us. He urges us to take hold of him in prayer. And he blesses us in prayer. He never gives us what's bad for us. I want you to know that I'm available, that deacons in this room are available, the elders are available, other counselors are available. If you're sitting there saying, I don't know about that, because I want you to know this is true. Your God's never given you what's bad for you. And there's ways to work through the nuances of struggling with that because it's not completely abnormal to struggle with it. The major prophets struggled with it. The minor prophets struggled with it. The disciples struggled with it. Your father loves you very much. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for ever thinking that you might give us what's bad for us. Thank you for being a God who knows our deepest needs before we voice them, yet still gives us the room to voice them. Thank you for being a God who hears us, who changes us in Christ, and who blesses us by giving us only good things from a Father who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.